Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. And that's what I did in Fishbone as well. When I played with Fishbone, I really admired Kendall Jones, the original guitarist's playing. So I said, if I'm going to join Fishbone, I'm going to learn his parts exact. So when it came to all his rhythm guitars and all, I learned that stuff exact. But then when it came time to showcase what I did, then I just took it over the top. You know what I mean? And that, that's, that's the way I do it. When it comes time, play a solo or do something, you know, then I'm, then I'm me 100%. But I wanted people to feel the vibe that Fishbone had and, and Kendall's parts were spectacular, his guitar parts. And and he's an excellent guitar player as well. You know, well, he's the first let, member of Fishbone I met back in the day. Sp Spacey, let the people know what, what years did you play with Fishbone primarily? I played with Fishbone that was uh Wow. I know I left the band in two thousand and three. So I think it was 90, 98, something like that. I don't know. Late 90s, I came the, early right 2000s. After, uh, JB, are you familiar with uh, the lineup they had with JB when they did um, Chim Chim's Badass Revenge and that album? Well, I have the record. Yeah, I came in at, like after that. After that, yeah, and it, it was great. And, and it's funny because when I started um, auditioning and, and rehearsing with Fishbone, like JB was there. He was there watching me rehearse with them. And the first like four, five shows I did with Fishbone, JB actually played with us. And then he said, "Oh, you got this," and and he split. You know. How was it uh, trading licks with Norwood? Oh, it's fun. It's so much fun, man. I learned I learned a lot playing with those guys, you know. And I even got to write two compositions that I wrote with Fishbone, too. That was really cool songs, and people really loved this stuff, too. And, and it's crazy because now looking back on it, it's a cool thing that that happened, and now I can use that material because they'll probably never play that stuff again because the original lineup is back together. You know, so they're not going to play the stuff that from my era with Fishbone, you know. So, I mean, for reference, uh, there was, uh, we did the, the Psychotic Friends Networks album, I was, Nutworks album, that I was telling you about that we did um, for Hollywood Records. But, you know, after little promotion and then they tried to make the band, like, as commercial as possible. And one of the, um, one of the points of it was they said we were going to do the soundtrack for the new Friends movie that was coming out at the time and all of a sudden that didn't happen so you know but after that we did an album called live at the temple bar and that was the kind of middle finger to the record company record where we went back to the, what we normally did and we did brand new material in front of a live audience and, and the goal was to go back in the studio after playing this stuff and make the studio version of this stuff but i got to do two uh two compositions on that recording and one was Angelo and I wrote together called there's a demon in here and the other one was called uh, last days critical times so I really got to compose some stuff with Fishbone and that was fun to do too because I always saw this certain thing a place I wanted to take them that they didn't go before 
you know? Because I remember they had a song called Rockstar on the um, Chim Chim album, and Angelo was talking about how the classical scene wasn't him. So I said, okay, I'm going to show him. So this song, um, Demon in Here, was based on some classical music that I wrote, and it was in D minor, and it was very classically influenced, you know what I mean? We were using the, uh, the uh, D harm, uh, harmonic minor scale in the song. And I taught it to the band, and we, I, we wrote, I wrote the song around that harmonic minor scale. And it was really cool, and it was super heavy. And the audience, after we played the song, they'd go, wow, <laughs> that was intense, you know what I mean? And same with the other one. The other one was uh, Critical Times, Last Days. And, and the ironic thing about that, we were doing these songs right before 9-11 at the Wetlands in New York. Oh, wow. A few days before that whole thing went down, we were saying, get out of the city. Last days, critical times. And we left to come back to L.A., and that happened. Wow, that's deep. We got to there just in time. Mm. We would have been stuck in on the East Coast, you know. Mm. Wow. Pretty cool. And so, and it was before then that you played with Mother's Finest, right? What years was that? Before then. That was uh, Mother's Finest. I, let me see, because I, I go by when I left, I, I, 92. It had to be like 91 when I joined Mother's Finest. How'd you connect with them? Well, I was a part of uh, the L.A. chapter of the Black Rock Coalition. Mm -hmm. And there was a few members. There was a member, his name was Todd, uh, Todd Maximus. He was like, man, you never guess who I, I saw in the parking lot. And I asked them to come to the meetings, and he met Mother's Finest. So they started coming to the meetings, and um, when they first came to the meeting, I wasn't there. But why I had my group Gangland at the time. It was a thrash band, and we were part of the Black Rock Coalition at the time because Soundberry was broken up by then. And um, so we were playing because what 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 the BRC was trying to do at that time, we were trying to get a star for Jimi Hendrix on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So we were doing all these shows to help him to get the money together and all that to get the star. And we got it. But what happened was one of the shows we played, the next day I got a call and it was like, this is Glenn Murdoch from Mother's Finest. You want to join Mother's Finest? And I was like, huh? And I said, how do you even know me? And he said, well, we saw you play last night. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know you were at the show. Why didn't you come say anything? You know, and they said, well, you know, we didn't want to disturb you or anything, but we figured we'd call you the next day. So I went down there and um, did some jamming with them. And next thing you know, I was in the band, which was really cool, you know, because they liked the feel. And that's the thing, that getting the feel of something. They liked the way I could capture the feel that they were putting down. Because I always looked at Mother's Finest, their whole, their whole groove to me. And, and they said, well, how did you know that? To me, was based on Bo Diddley. You know how Bo Diddley had that... Yeah. Mothers back then, that was the whole Mother's Finest groove. You know what I mean? So when I said, it reminds me of Bo Diddley, and I said, wow, that's wow, that's something that you picked up on that. You know what I mean? So, you know, I played with Mother's Finest for a few years and went all over Europe with them. And uh, With Joyce Kennedy? Yeah. Joyce. Yeah, she can blow. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we... we Click just like that when we met. It was awesome. And Wizard and I became really good friends. And at the time, it was uh, it was Glenn Murdoch, Joyce, their son Dion was the drummer, John Hayes was the guitarist, and Wizard on bass. So Mo wasn't there, you know, the original guitarist, who I totally admired back in the day as well, you know. So we got to just stretch out. And then that group, I had my designated job. You know what I mean? I was the rhythm guitarist. So because John was taking care of most of the leads, they gave me a couple of leads on a couple songs, but my job was playing rhythm. So, you know, I had these, it was kind of confining, but it was fun, you know? I, the, the difference is in Fishbone, for example, when I joined Fishbone, they said, man, you have 100% freedom to do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. And th when you tell me that, that's when you get the best of me, really, because then I know when to play, when not to play. It's, it's about knowing all of these things and, and knowing the feel. 
you know. In Mother's Finest, like I had a, a ball, but I felt kind of restricted because I couldn't be a hundred percent me. You it's know? more like a hired hand versus an, a part of the group, really. Yes, yes. And where in Fishbone, I was a member of the group, mm -hmm. you know. And they said, "Hey, man, do whatever you feel like doing," and that's that's what I need in a band. Like with with OG Funk, Billy, you know, Billy's like, "This is your band." Do whatever you want. You were on that record, right? OG Funk? OG Funk yes. Yeah, and yeah. that's the precursor to this because Muddy's on there too. Yeah, yeah. And and Bill Laswell produced that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a whole story behind that whole record as well. Well, tell that. We got a lot of Funketeers that watch this. so. Yeah. Well, that was supposed to be a new Funkadelic project called the New Funkadelic. And Eddie passed away. So once when Eddie passed away, it turned into a, like a Billy Bass, Nelson, OG Funk project. And Bill Laswell called me and said, Eddie Hazel told me that you have to be on this record. And I was like, wow, I'm honored, you know, because Eddie did some stuff with them before with Bill before he passed. On that Funk Comicon or something like that record. Funk Funkinomicron, yeah. yeah. Yes, that was Eddie, some of Eddie's last studio recordings with Bill. And Bill said, yeah, he played really well, and he, he was some good stuff, you know. So I was trying to go in and kind of keep that vibe going, you know what I mean? But Billy, once it became Billy's project, Billy had his own songs and stuff that he wanted to do. And we did some old Funkadelic covers, too, but that he wrote. But it was mostly Billy's originals that he was writing at the time, you know. So it was myself on guitar, and he had a couple other friends that he had a couple guys from New Jersey, and a couple of other, and another guy Blake, I think from L.A., that played on the project as well. And that project was weird for me because that was a tense situation for me because the whole time I'm playing, there was something like grabbing my shoulder like this, and I felt like it was Eddie had his hand on my shoulder while I was playing the whole time. So. If you listen to that song, um, Music for My Brother, which was for Eddie, that's what I felt when I was playing it. Mm. Like, it was, he had his hand on my shoulder, and I was like, oh, man, I'm, I can do this. I can do this, you know? And that people loved that song. Wow. Yeah. Remember Funkadelic Groupie on there, too, was a good one. Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite on the album. Yeah, Billy loves that. He said, man, how did you play that solo? I said, he said, that's to him, that's the best solo on the record. He loved it. And and so you met Laswell? Yes. How did yes. what how did he impress you? Say it again. How did he impress you? What what did you take oh, away I from totally him? I was impressed by him as well because I love the stuff he did with Paraxis. I love Buckethead, so I loved all of that stuff that he did and he was supposed to do a project with me. Like I had a project called Spacey T's House of Consciousness. And I sent a bunch of music to him, and I, for some reason, I never heard back from him. And I don't know what happened. Maybe he went bankrupt, or I, I don't know what happened. Because he was, you know, after that Billy Bass project, he was like, the last time I heard from Bill, he said he was doing a project with Tony Williams, which I have that album. And he, they were trying to get in touch with me because Tony Williams, now this blew me away, heard the guitar stuff I did on Billy Bass's record and wanted me to play some guitar on his album. Hmm. And I was like, you're talking about the Tony Williams. <laughs> you know, and I missed that, man. I, I think I ended I was in Europe or something at the time with Mother's Finest, and I missed playing on that record. And then Tony passed after that. And I was like totally disappointed because I'm a big fan of Tony Williams' lifetime. I mean, Alan Holsworth. And another one of my heroes who I played with, uh, Tony Newton, was the bass player on that album. And I love Tony Newton. Tony Newton's going through a lot right now. He just had, uh, a few months ago, he had uh, some kind of triple something surgery because he had cancer. Hmm. So I've been trying to get in touch with him to see how he's doing because he showed a picture on Facebook and his whole stomach was stapled up. You know, and uh, man, I love Tony. He had a black rock band project years ago too called Newton's Law and my little nephew was the lead guitarist on it and Tony asked me to play rhythm guitar on it so I, I did all the rhythm guitars on it for him and I don't know if he ended up releasing it I, I, don't, I think it never released it but that was fun doing that because Tony Newton 
also played with, like I said, my heroes, Gary Moore and Alan Holdsworth. Mm-hmm. So I was always a big fan of Tony Newton, too, like Snake Oil and all that stuff he did with, with the, the new Lifetime. Phenomenal stuff. And I'm into all that. Like I said, I'm a jazz rock fusion fan. I'm a prog rock fan. I'm a ska fan. I'm a reggae fan. I mean, almost every style of music, classical music, I just love it all. Yeah. You well, know, so for I me, I mean, anyone who can really, anyone who can really play, um, I'm yes, sort of I'm a, a fan, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Because people ask me, who's your favorite guitar player? And I'm like, well, what style of music? You know, I, I love guitars of every style of music and bass players and drummers as well. Because I'm a bass player and a drummer as well. Really pop them, those people, you know. Space, I want to step back uh, for a moment. And you mentioned the Black Rock Coalition. Does that still exist? Yes. Is that still around? I think it does. I think there's still a branch, too, in L.A. here, but I haven't been a part of it in years. Greg Tate was the leader of that, sort of? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember that well at the time um, because I was, you know, definitely a crusader for, you know, integrated music and um, all that back in the 80s when it came out. But um, looking back on the whole situation and what you've done and and the way things were then you know how do you feel what's your perspective on the struggle for black musicians to cross over and play rock and get respected on rock radio and all that sort of you know well segregation that's a great question man and I, i really think that it's done a little bit better but it hasn't done what it should be still to me, you know, and I think it's kind of sad because, I mean, we're talking 2021. By now, we should have been past all of this stuff, you know what I mean? And it's still the same. I mean, to me, I mean, look at, like, look at the band that came right after us, for example. Look at Living Color. I mean, I think Living Color should be on top of the world right now. And they're still, you know, you know, look at all these bands that it's, that's doing really well in the underground, of course. But as far as the big corporate scene, they're not doing anything, you know. Fishbone, I mean, Mother's Finest, we're all still playing out there, but we're still on this certain level. And that's why, have you ever seen that documentary I did a few years ago called Electric Purgatory? I have not seen it. And it dealt with the... uh, the state of the black musician it was called the fate of the black rocker where we get to a certain level and then we're stuck there we're in purgatory you know what i mean we're not going to get they're not going to let us get any bigger so we're stuck in this middle ground of you know we're not on the radio we're not all these other bands getting all this radio play we're not on the radio you're not on tv but we're really big in the underground and we inspire all these other bands that go on past us and we get get bigger than us, but we're still stuck in that purgatory. Another great example of that is Fishbone. You know, like look at Fishbone and No Doubt, for example. I still always look at, and I, I totally love and respect No Doubt, but those guys were totally 100% inspired by Fishbone. I mean, Gwen Stefani back then was the female Angelo, but look how they rose. They didn't. They went past the purgatory. And, became phenomenal, you know. Fishbone's still at the same level that they were always at. Look how big the Red Hot Chili Peppers got. Right, exactly. That's my point. Yep. So, you know, and Sound Barrier, my dad gets upset every time we talk about Sound Barrier because he goes, man, son, you should have been as big as Van Halen. But I know why you're not, you know. Because we had that opportunity if our record company would have been behind us and we got all the tours and we could have backed it up musically, you know, but we didn't never got the chance to do it, you know. And even I could tell you stories, man, like when Sound Barrier, um, when Ozzy, check this out, I'll tell you one of the stories. When Randy Rhodes passed away, right, I sent Ozzy's people an t- auditioning tape of me because I knew all of Randy's stuff. Sharon Osborne sent us a letter back saying, your guitar playing is phenomenal. You're awesome. But we don't think Ozzy's fans could get used to the fact that he has a black guitar player. So we have to pass. Alicia's honest. You know what I'm saying? That's about all you can say on that one. 
Yeah, and I have the letter somewhere. I'm going to find it. I have it in my back. It's packed up somewhere. I'm going to get it out and post it whenever I come across it again. Because it was years ago. It's back in the 80s. You know, it's it right after Randy passed away. Mm. You know, and I said, well, I could do that gig. I know all of those songs. You know, and you know what's funny, ironic about that? I have a picture I could send you. Brad Gillis came and saw Sound Barrier play. And he was one of the guitarists that after uh, Bernie Bernie Tappen, I forget his name, played was the first one. And then they got Brad Gillis to replace uh, Randy. Randy so, passed you know, in what, like 82? Something like that, yeah. And yeah. Brad Gillis came Sound Barrier play. Mm. I have a picture of him. Standing next to me, pointing at me, you know, my guitar and stuff, my Jackson. Well, in 83, when Sound Barrier came out, I mean, that was just, I think, the first year that was right around when, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince were finally getting videos on MTV. I mean, it was so segregated. Yeah, yeah, same with that. We sent a, uh, we sent a, also sent a package to Prince, too, because we wanted to open for Prince. And Prince sent us a letter back saying that he loved the band as well, but he said that he was going to take the time in Vanity Six out with him, you know. So we didn't get to do that either. But but it was okay, you know. We went and saw Purple Rain and all that. It was I love I love Prince. Actually, Sound Barrier is going to cover Dreamer. Have you ever heard this? Oh, I love that song, song. Dreamer. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. A, a band of gypsies type track. Yeah. Yep. We're doing it. <laughs> where where do you rate Prince uh, as a guitar player? Because uh, a lot of people think he's like one of the greatest, and some say not so great. And I love Prince, but um, I think he's one of the greatest. I love Prince as well. I, I'll take up for him in a second. I had many friends back in the day that didn't think he was all that great, and didn't think he was this. And to me, he proved himself over and over and over again as far as his guitar playing. And I got to meet Prince, too, because Prince was a big Mother's Finest fan as well. So one of the... I heard him cover Love Changes playing. before, yeah. Yeah, him and Wizard were pretty close friends. We were playing in Germany, and it was my birthday's uh, June 9th. His is June 7th. So um, he came and saw us play at some little German club, I forget the name of the club, and invited us to his birthday party. So we went to his birthday party, and Glenn gave me this little top-of-the-line little cassette deck, and I took it, and I recorded the whole show. And um, at the end of the show, Prince came up and shook my hand, and I said, man, that was one of the greatest, loosest birthday party shows I've ever seen in my life, you know, and it was, it was really cool to meet him, you know. And I've, I've been a Prince fan since the beginning. Because I felt we had so much in common. I mean, we're both Gemini's. Our birthday, we're like, I'm one year older than him. You know, so I could get to everything he was doing. And, and the, to me, I thought when he played with uh, the Third Eye Girl stuff was phenomenal. Yeah, he went back that to the real Prince rock. Was getting to be a great, uh, even greater guitarist. And when he did the thing at the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was, I was in tears. Yeah. I, I said he I felt like he was playing that show for all the black rock guitar players that never got any credit. And then at the end, what does he do? Throws guitar up in the air and walk up the stage. And I was just in awe. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Uh, that was one of the greatest moments amongst the greatest moments in rock and roll history. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that. Yep, me too. It was just me so too. awesome. Yeah. Um, I love Prince. Oh, we'll always love Prince. Um, so, and you did some playing with uh, Spies, too? 21st yes. Spies. Well, Jim, we, like I said, we go back. Well, we did some uh, background vocals on one of their albums. Like Stanley and I, was because when Jimmy and Rick used to live in L.A., they started recording that album. I think it was a Heavy Metal Soul by the Pound album. And at the same time, my big brother Doug Pennick was recording the King's X album, too. So we'd go back and forth, go hang out with Doug at the studio in Santa Monica, then go to the valley and hang out with Jimmy, you know. And um, it was a lot of fun to do those background vocals, you know, a lot of fun. You mentioned, Doug, you, you mentioned Doug. Have you gotten to meet uh, one of my other favorite players today is Eric Gales? Oh, I love Eric, too. We're all family. That's what I'm saying. We are all family. When I was touring 
with um with Mother's Finest. What was it, Mother's Finest? Or Eric Gills. One of uh, his texts was touring with us, and he used to call him all the time while he was on the road with us, and I'd speak to Eric. When Eric Gales first came to L.A., when the first Eric Gales album came out, he came and played at the Roxy. He was just a and teenager. And I went and saw him, and that's, when Eric, and that's a great record, that first album. was. And I think that Eric Gales is like the Jimi Hendrix of today. I can honestly say that because the guy is flawless. <laughs> His playing is flawless. There's another example, though. You know, why isn't he like an Eric Clapton in terms of fame, you know? Right. That's what I'm saying. There we go again. There's that yeah. whole racial thing that I'm talking about. See, he should be on top of the world right now. And see, what happens to us, sometimes we get so discouraged that we sometimes go to harder drugs and stuff because we get depressed because we're doing everything we could do and we still don't get recognized, you know? And then you get depressed and you start doing stuff. And you get sick, and you you know, and it's really weird, you know, because I, I know Eric had a bunch of bouts with crack and all kinds of different stuff, and he he's super clean now, and he's playing better than ever, you know. And I, I just wish that he was like really seeing the financial part of his playing, like 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 our counterparts that are all all got a chance to be millionaires, you know. A lot of our counterparts really made a lot of money. And lived, got the chance to live really well. And some of them squandered it off and lost it all, but at least they had the chance to do it. And what we're seeing some of you that know? too at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, it just gets me agitated. But yeah, yes, sir. It's it's crazy, you know. But the thing is, people like me, what I figured, as long as I could still breathe, I still love music. So I'm gonna keep doing it. You know, it's not like I'm gonna. Because at one point, I almost did retire. You know, I was working for years, like teaching kids music, because that's another thing that Lisa Marie and I do. We've been teaching for this after-school project called Lacer After School Rock Band Project, and we've been doing that for the last 15 years. You know, so this is our first year doing it Zoom, and it's crazy, you know, because we, we're hands-on teachers, music teachers, and doing it online with kids, you know, that, that they're looking like this. You know, and they don't really want you to see them. And we're like, come on, you guys, we want to teach you how to play. There's nothing to fear. If we were in class, we would be seeing you anyway. So, you know, let's, let me see your fingers and what you're doing, you know. And it's starting to come along a lot better now. But it, after, we're, we're going on the, like, what, four or five months now. What, what would be on Zoom and Zoom? What would be a tip you might have for an aspiring um, player who really wants to? Uh, succeed in, in like funk rock style music? Well, you just got to just believe in yourself, man. That's what I would say. And just no matter what people tell you, just keep going. You know what I mean? Because like for me, I didn't care what people said about what I did. You know what I mean? Because there was many times even in Sound Barrier where I remember once we were playing the Roxy and we were going upstairs after show and this reporter said, well, how do you guys feel like playing white music? And I was like, Huh? I mean, I'm I'm doing. I thought Little Richard. I'm I'm just doing what my ancestors left for me to do. You know, Little, Little Richard and Chuck Berry, and you know, these guys were there to architect the rock and roll. So what we're doing is just taking it and modernizing it to to fit the times right now. So and and the thing is too, like, you know, I left it all. Like I had just as many white guitar players that I love, like. As, as black ones, you know what I mean? For me, like I was telling you in the beginning, it was just I wanted to see how many black guitar players I could find out there that was like me, you know what I mean? And ended up coming across a bunch. And nowadays, there's hundreds of black rock bands. Hundreds. You know what I mean? Everywhere. And when we started, I'm sure there was a bunch of them, but they just, we didn't know who they were and they were local. If you were in Chicago and we're in New Jersey or L.A., we're not going to hear about you unless you're on a major label. And that's how they all got to hear about us. Because we were on a major label, but they were all on independent labels. So they were big in their cities. But if we didn't go to that city, we never heard of those people. So fast forward now, you with the internet, I'm hearing all about all of these bands. And now I'm friends with a lot of those bands, too. There was another band that came out the same time as us back in the day 
They were called Black Death from Chicago, I think it was. And now we're really good friends with those guys. There was another one in San Francisco called Stone Vengeance. Really good friends with those guys now. We're all planning. We said someday in the future we'd like to all get together and do a tour, you mm -hmm. know, or do something together, you know what I mean? We have to, you know? I mean, even Death, too. I would start becoming friends with the guys from Death. And then, you know, there's all these bands that we didn't even know existed that was, you know, trying to do it as well. You know what I mean? Another one is Pure Hell. Have you heard of Pure Hell? No. Oh, they're so awesome. They were considered the first black punk band. They were they were uh, managed by, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Curtis Knight, that wrote that first Jimi Hendrix biography. Mm. You know? Really great band, too. I mean, excellent. Well, that's one of the really great things about the internet is allowing exposure for more yeah, of these yeah, kind of and bands. Yeah, see, what sucks about it was, see, when I first heard punk music, for example, I, I didn't, I didn't like it that much because I came from listening to Jimi Hendrix and and all of that funkadelic. So if you heard that stuff and then you hear the Sex Pistols, you're like, they can't even play, you know yeah. what I mean? But at the same time, before that, there was there was pure hell, right? And there was death. If I would have, but they were on independent labels where they lived in their cities. If I would have heard that punk music back then, I would have been a hundred percent with it, you know. But I didn't hear that until ten years ago, fifteen years ago. You know what I mean? Didn't even know they existed until then, you know. And now everybody knows who they are now, and I'm glad because those are some great bands, you know. I remember I met Spider. Before he passed away, he was the drummer in Pure Hell. About mm, maybe 20 years ago, he came to L.A. and I met him. He's like, yeah, man, I had a band called Pure Hell. And I was, I was like, Pure Hell? I never even heard of them. And then after he passed away, I started hearing about them and how big they were and how, you know, they even inspired the Bad Brains. You know what I mean? So I was like, wow, it's just you just never know. You well, know, and even like a mother's finest, you know, yeah. some people are still even just discovering them because except for like that one ballad, you know, they hardly got any radio play. And that was so atypical of what they do, you know. That's what I'm talking about. And, and so have you noticed a big change in that, in, in bands of color getting more airplay today? It's the same as it ever was. Yeah, no, I haven't. <laughs> so to me, it almost seems like that racism is still there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But at least the internet offers a way around it for those yes. who want yes. to find it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you hear about a name, you can look it up. Did, did you do a, uh, a Hendrix tribute at some point with, um, yeah. Doug Pinnock, my big brother? No, well, that was more recent. But like years ago, did you do one with Eddie and. Yeah, yeah. My band Crunchy. Yeah. We did. Was that thing I was telling you about that was trying to help Jimi Hendrix get that star on the Walk of Fame. That was part of the BRC that we did that. Okay, what year was that then about? That was like 89, something like that. And who was playing in that? Um, that was a bunch of my friends. Actually, Stan Lee, the bass player from Sound Barrier, was part of that band. And then we had uh, our drummer's name was Jim, Jimbo Millennium. <laughs> And uh, Mitch Culpepper, Pepper was the other guitarist, and uh, Philly Phil, a friend of mine, was a keyboard. They, these guys, they weren't in big bands or nothing. They were just really talented musicians that I put together for that. And we were rehearsing, and um, and one of those days, Eddie called me and he said, "What you doing?" And I said, hey, "I'm getting ready to rehearse for this Hendrix uh, Walk of Fame star thing for the BRC." And he said, "Could I sit in with you?" And I'm like, "Are you kidding? Of course you can." So Eddie came to the rehearsals with us, and he and he did the show with us. <laughs> so that was awesome. It was just Eddie, though, not Bernie Worrell? Yeah, well, yes. See, I'm, you almost made me forget. The last song, I, I, I coerced Eddie into playing Maggot Brain, and Bernie was in the audience, and he's like, okay. can I come up and play on Maggot Brain? I'm like, sure. So that's how Bernie got onto that. And that was a great day because I also met another one of my heroes that that evening who passed away too. And that was one of the guitar players from um from Buddy Miles band, Mr. Marlo Henderson, who I admired as well. One of my heroes. And he was at the show. And we became friends from that too. 
And now I'm really close friends with his son, Paolo Henderson. And he wrote a whole story on it about how I was a big fan of his dad's, and I saw him as a kid on the soul called, a show called Soul when I was still living in New Jersey. And fast forward, Paolo saw me when he was a kid, Sound Barrier video, and he, when he was a little kid. Mm. And when I met Paolo, he almost had me crying. He said, man, I looked up to you. I was a little guy. I said, well, I looked up to your dad like that. So I have pictures of me and his dad standing together at one year at NAMM. And then a few years later, I have a picture standing with Paolo almost in the same spot, same everything. It's crazy. Wow. <laughs> so I, like I said, man, I have tons of stories. Uh, hopefully there's going to be a book coming out in the near future with all of these stories. I could remember all of them. There's hundreds of them. You know, they're all splinters that branch off from different situations. You know, um, you, you talked about really when you're in a band, really getting those parts down, like the originals and so forth. Yes. But for you, um, what would you say, you know, when you do your own thing, distinguishes your particular style when you want to do the Spacey T thing? Oh, that's a great question. Well, my thing is it's really like a culmination of all of that stuff, but just with even more of the way I would go about doing it. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. It's like being able to distinguish from me sounding like Eddie Hazel as opposed to me sounding like me. So, like, if you listen to, like, that first Sound Barrier album, for example, that's around the time when I first met Eddie. But you don't hear any of that on the album because that was one thing. This is a metal thing. I'm not trying to get Eddie's vibe on this album. You know what I mean? But then when it comes time, like, when I was with Fishbone, for example, some of that stuff acquired the Eddie Hazel vibe. So it was on there. You know what I mean? And that's the thing, just being able to distinguish when, you know, now I got to do me, you know. And my style is all over the place as well, but it's just a lot more things that, like, for example, Eddie wouldn't do. And that's the thing Eddie used to say all the time. He used to say, how come you could sound like me, but I can't sound like you? And I said, well, man, because I listen to everything. Like, I'm in the jazz rock fusion, for example. Eddie wasn't really a jazz rock fusion guy, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, I'm listening to Al Demiola trying to do that stuff or Alan Holsworth or, you know, and I, I'm into all of that stuff as well. That's you know the West mean? Montgomery lineage that you talked about from the yes. get-go. Yeah. Exactly. From checking out Miles and my dad turning me on to Miles Davis and Miles having all those members of his band that became leaders in their own rights. You know, like John McLaughlin, who I loved his plan and followed all ahead. And that's how I discovered Billy Cobham. Because he was Ma Vishnu Orchestra's first drummer. And I was like, who is that guy? Yeah. And I love I love me some Billy Cobham. And, and That's Alphonse one of my favorites. Those are my two favorite fusion drummers, and I got to meet both of them. Who was the other I one you said? Right Alphonse Muzan. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got to meet him right before he passed away, too. Hmm. He, we were supposed to do something together as well. And then he, he, had got, he got cancer, and he passed. But him and I talked about Tommy Bolin. All day. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about being diverse and sort of like a chameleon on on the guitar, but I, I saw uh, clips of you even doing some serious blues too. Yeah, love BB too. Yeah, did uh, I think we did? I did a BB King tribute. I did the Thrill Is Gone, and I I've studied BB my whole life too. You know, but and that's funny because when we did that Psychotic Friends Networks album, Fishbone. The producer is like, every solo on this record, I want you to go BBB. Be, be, be. And I'm like, man, I love BB King, but the fans of Fishman already heard me play live. I'm, I got to be me. And that was a T. That was one of those things where we were arguing over style where he wants me to sound like somebody else, and I'm trying to be 100% me. Mm. You know? And we, we, we got to argued a lot over that. So if you listen to that live, uh, I mean, that Fishbone album, this is how you could get a contrast of me. Listen to the Psychotic Friends Networks album, the studio album, listen to those solos, and then listen to the live at the Temple Bar, which we did right after that. And that's where I'm really at musically, where nobody's saying, do this, do that, sound like this, sound like that, you know? So you can hear the big contrast on those two records, right, recorded right after each other. Huh? The yin and the yang. Yep, exactly. 
What, what are you most proud of accomplishing? Wow. That's funny that you say that. I think that I would have to go back and say that Sound Barrier album because that was the beginning of, of, of me going, okay, I got signed by a major label. This is my chance to really get out there where, where all my heroes are, you know? So I have to go back and say that Sound Barrier album, you know? Because that's the thing that put me on the map as a, as a solo artist, as Spacey T. Because on the Bonnie Porter stuff, I was still used. I put Tracy Singleton. I didn't even put Spacey T on that yet. Because I wanted to save it for the Sound Barrier album, you know? Now, this is my official stage name. Because I was called Spacey T when I was making I brought that name from New Jersey when I came from New Jersey. But I said, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to use it when, when I'm doing my own music, you know? Did, did you guys ever get play on any uh, album-oriented rock stations? Yeah. Yeah, they played our stuff here out here in L.A. on um, KLOS and KMET, the two rock stations. They, they tried to embrace us, you know. They tried to play us as much as we could. They could, I mean, but we didn't really get in the prime time spot. Same with, excuse me, same with MTV. We had our Rock Without the Roll video on um, MTV, but they played it like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. So imagine if they would have played that in a prime spot. We, we might have gotten somewhere, you know. Hmm. But they didn't, so. When you play that uh, funk experience material, is there one particular uh, song that is the most challenging for whatever reason? Wow. Well, for me, it's it's a challenge just to keep make Billy smile. <laughs> I love to make Billy smile, you know. But the songs, I've been playing those songs my whole life, so I can kind of play them in my sleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I studied that stuff ever since my, my aunt's uh, friend said that I sounded like Funkadelic. So that stuff I could do in my sleep. But the challenge is going to be when we ever go in the studio and record brand new original music in the same vein as that. That's going to be the challenge. Recapture we want it to sound that. Like yeah. it's from back then, you know? Yeah. psychedelic everything we want to put the, the panning guitars and it's going to sound like the first three funkadelic records you know and can you do it without george involved that's a question yes because we got money yeah what yeah, we could what um what can you say about him uh we know he's incredibly talented and unique vocalist but what about as just a, a guy he is fantastic I love Muddy. Muddy's like a brother to me, man. We got close really fast. We felt like we already knew each other, and I didn't know him before. I just met him once we started the Funk Experience. And um, it's like we know each other already. It's like he told me a bunch of stories about Eddie because he was with them back, back in the day as well. Before he even joined Bootsy's Rubber Band and all that, he was hanging out with Eddie and, and Billy and them guys. You know, so he was telling me stories about them, too. You know, I was like, wow. I mean, him and Tiki were like brothers. They used to hang out a lot, you know. So it was great to be able to hear those stories from Muddy, you know. And it's funny because Muddy, he didn't really know of me either. And I got in the band because Billy said, I'm not doing the funk experience unless I can have Spacey here, you know. So Billy, I mean, so Muddy was like, well, I never heard him. Who is that? You know? So once he heard me, that was it. And I have, I, I'm, I'm going to send it to you. I have to, I have to get it on my phone. I'll send it to you. Our first sound check, we did Maggot Brain and sound check. Muddy came up to me and said, could you turn up a little bit? Because we were just messing around in sound checks. So I was playing a little, little, we all, and if you ever ask Muddy, he'll tell you, we all started crying. Muddy said, I don't cry at no sound check or no rehearsals. You had me crying, thinking about Eddie. And then I looked over at Billy and he was doing this. You know, wow. and I was I started thinking of my grandmother and Eddie and we were all crying. <laughs> man. You know, and, that, and that's the thing that Muddy, he says, man, I'll never forget that. You made me cry, dude. You sounded so much like Eddie. You had me crying in sound check. 
So that's where me and Muddy are, you know. And I have it on video. Another friend of mine was recording the whole thing at the time, so I'll send that to you. Ah, oh, well, I'm going to hold you to that. I want to okay. check that out for sure. Okay. So, hey, I think we've uh, recovered. Anything else you want to uh, get off your chest or uh, you want to? Uh... Well, there's one more thing I wanted to say, and then, and then we'll call it. Um, I just want to thank you and everybody that I played with for uh, having me do the stuff with them, you know, and have, and have so many great experiences. I want to thank my girl, Lisa Marie, for Praise the Dead, for putting up with me for all these years and helping put this stuff together. And then I want to thank Terrence Cummings. Terrence Cummings is the luthier that built this guitar for me, you know, and his son, Boris Cummings, who's called now Barefoot Boris. The quick story behind this guitar is I taught his son guitar in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade from this laser after school program that I was telling you that me and Lisa do. And his uh, dad was looking at looking for me for about a year. And he finally got in touch with me on Facebook. And he said, man, my son's doing really well in music. He's a producer now and he's playing guitar and producing bands thanks to you. And I want to build you a guitar. So he said, well, you know, because at first I was like, well, what are you building? I went on his page and he had strats and tellies that he builds. And I said, well, those are cool. Can you build me an eight-string strat? And, you know, and he's like, yeah. But he said, you know, if you want something original, too. And I said, have you ever had an original idea? And this was my original idea. I loved, I used to play Parker guitars when I was with Fishbone. And I got to play a Les Paul Parker that they were developing that, you know, that looked like this. Like a Les Paul was a Parker thing. So I said, I have a design for a Les Paul uh, Parker with a maple net and scallop frets, I mean, um, fan frets. So I drew him a diagram of it, and he, he built it for me. Wow. And he, he did an excellent job. So after we I got this one, he's like, well, you know, I can make you, you know, six-string and seven-string models. And then we start thinking, wow, maybe we can see if we could start selling some of these things. So right now he's finishing up the six-string version and the seven string and another eight string version and we're going to put them up and see what happens you know how much uh, interest or demand is there in eight string models do you think well i think they're picking up a lot now because there's a lot of kids that's playing them you know it is and that's a whole new style of music around the eight string guitars called gent and it's like gent is progressive heavy like metal with jazz influence and a lot of different other things like electronica and all in, in um, infused in this music. And uh, one of the, my favorite artists at that is Animals as Leaders, Tosa Nabasi, who also has his own guitar company now. And to me, for me, he's the Hendrix of today. You know, he's so innovative and he's just destroying the guitar. You get a chance to listen to some Animals as Leaders, check them out. Very uh -huh. innovative. Yeah, I will. I, I'm trying to think. The first person I can recall using even a seven string, I think maybe it was Steve Vai. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes, he was one of the first ones. Yeah. 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 And now there's all kinds of eight string companies, and I mean, I was, I was, uh, my first eight string guitars I played was an Ibanez, and then I went to, I got endorsed with Schecter, and I got a couple of, uh, like three eight strings from Schecter. Which I love, but then I met, you know, I got in touch with Terrence, so now I'm exclusively just playing these. This is all I play now. You know, I love this guitar. And when was the last time you played a banjo? Uh, you really want to know? The last, <laughs> that banjo on that <laughs> on the bottom corner album. But I checked this out. I had a guitar, uh, Variax by line six, and it had a banjo setting in it, where it could sound like any guitar, it had a flick of a switch. You could make it sound like a banjo, a sitar, Les Paul, strats, tellies, just everything. And I was using that. I used that on the Dirty Walt album, which is with trumpet player for Fishbone, and it sounds exactly like a banjo. So I used that. <laughs> I, I remember I always thought the banjo really helped set off uh, One Nation to a Groove by Funkadelic. And then when I yeah. got with George Clinton and I was like saying it was like genius. And then I found out it was just sort of happenstance or some guy in the studio who played banjo. 
and they threw it on there and it worked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the best things that you think are so innovative just kind of fell into place. Yep. Yep. But, uh, hey, Spacey, has been a blast. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for all the great music and guitar and, and everything that you've done and brought us and will still bring us. There's more to come. Maybe okay. we can do it part two because there's a, there's a lot more I can tell you. <laughs> Yeah. How can people um, how can people keep abreast of when you might have something coming out or whatever? Well, just keep checking out for now. Uh, Praise the Dead, you know, on Facebook, uh, Funk Experience, and and Sound Barrier, and we'll we'll keep you posted. You know, we got singles coming out, Praise the Dead and uh, Sound Barrier, and hopefully when this pandemic is over, hopefully I can get back to the Funk Experience. I mean. We've been dying to get back together. Two of our members live in Scotland, so that's a whole other thing, too. Mm. We got to get them back over here. A guitarist, Neil Wilson, and a drummer, Hugh uh, Cox, are from Scotland. Hey, well, stay safe, be well, and uh, we'll connect again soon, I hope. Thank you so much, man. I'm honored. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wellfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one. We'll